Have you ever heard a Maine accent? That shit is hilarious. No. It's a bit like a sort of New Englandy kind of... So you know when I do Vermont accents for oh, yeah. you? Picture like an evil version of that. Okay. The Wario. <laughs> what, and then... I thought Maine's Waluigi, New Hampshire's Wario. Oh yeah, for sure. Vermont's Luigi, Massachusetts Mario. You best watch yourself. Hmm. You have a bad attitude, Daniel. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature, and maybe some mild swearing, is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hello, you are listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Beef Wellington over here is Daniel. Ooh, tough one for you today. Who is your Wellington? <laughs> well, Washington, and, I suppose. Oh, but did we make a pastry meat dish out of him? Lincoln Logs. That's a toy. <laughs> is that the closest? Is Abby? So, we are not doing a standard episode this time because what? at the time that this is being released, I will be in America. So, sorry about that, people. I have to go to a wedding. So what we are doing instead is a Q&A session where we talk about how we make this show, questions that you guys have for us. You might say, nobody wants a Q&A. Who are you? Nobody cares. Well, friend, there are 14 fans in Croatia who would disagree with you. Dobrada to all our <laughs> listeners in Croatia. <laughs> Right, so again, we'll just do our standard plugs. We have an MA and an undergrad in English here at Aston University, where Daniel and I teach. So if you guys want to come study with us, we would be delighted to have you. Please do sign up for that. And we now have a Patreon, where if you want more regular monthly content, we have some stuff over there. So we have a letter from somebody. Would you like to read? We'll only do one letter this time. Here's a letter from Eileen. Just trying to think about what voice to do. Don't you don't need to do a voice for everyone. Hello from Switzerland. No, do your normal voice, please. Okay. I've only been listening to your podcast ever since last autumn because the turn of the screw was on my syllabus and I coincidentally found you two on Spotify. I'm a first year English student at the University of Zurich and I am barely pulling through. I despise linguistics. Oh no! Yeah. I would probably agree. I think I had to do one English like language the thing in my undergrad and I was like, no, 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 this is just not for me. Yeah. Trees. Um, it's a word. Um, it's also a thing you do in linguistics. <laughs> um, without your uplifting podcast. Oh. Never, I don't think I'm... Daniel's a real fucking bummer, let me tell yeah. you, Eileen. <laughs> I probably would have dropped out by now, but your content portrays the exact vibes I was expecting of literary Aww. analysis, and your humour is, now listen to this, this could be on like a poster or something, your humour is unmatched. Eileen, come study with us, man. We'll give you this shit every week in class. You might also have to do English language stuff in linguistics. Oh yeah, definitely but, will, yeah. But... <laughs> But your jokes are truly hilarious and have all the qualitative effects of making me grin while commuting. Let's put that on the poster. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tad weird to do that here in Switzerland to make a happy face in public. 
If I'm correct, you are still taking suggestions for future episodes. Always. Would you ever consider covering Salome by Wild? You're a fan. Oh, I would love to do that one at some point. I'd I'd be worried I'd get carried away and just read the whole thing. Okay. Because it's rhythmic. Or just any of his plays. Yeah. Quite, quite different, the other ones are, aren't they? I suppose Salome probably would work better, purely because the play, works that are actually funny are kind of harder to make fun of, aren't they? It, yeah, it is, because I'm like, how are we going to do better than Oscar Wilde? Hmm, yeah. Well, you, anyway. Cool. So, uh, yeah, Daniel, you ready to bring everyone down the rabbit hole? With us? Yes, please. I mean, they're thinking it's probably going to be Alice in Wonderland, but I'm thinking it's going to be more Watership Down. Oh, rabbits. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what? I mean, our fans really came through. We, we asked for questions. Yes, thank you for these questions. They, they yeah. gave us a lot of questions. I am a little bit disappointed that we didn't get any Agony Aunt-style questions. I was specifically asking for Agony Aunt literary things, like... I don't know. Like, oh, I can't get to like in this book. Because people have written into us in that vein before, haven't they? Like, she wrote about Lolita and saying, oh, I'd never been able to work at the courage, but then I listened mm-hmm. to it and I took your advice. And So you've kind of been doing that all the way through, giving it agony art type advice. So I kind of thought we could have a bit more of that, but no. But, but none guess- of the other kind of agony art advice either about... I wanted to tell somebody to throw a drink in their mother-in-law's face. Oh, I'm really having trouble getting into... <laughs> War and peace. For a drink in your mum's face. Well, before we get into the questions, I wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit about how we make the show. Step one. We decide on the books we're going to cover. Somebody asks us about that, how we choose the books. I'll say that, but just the point is, is we've got a list. Step two. We both read the books. I write a kind of summary. And then we meet on campus to record it. And then... Six grueling hours later, <laughs> Abby edits it. We Yeah, we do record for a really long time. So for every hour of content that you guys get, we record for at least two to three times that long. So every episode, if it's like an hour long episode, we've recorded for about three hours. And the reason we do that is because, you know, we try to workshop different jokes. We try to find better, more economical or funnier ways of telling things. I think it's more... We more go off on... We go on tangents quite a lot. Some of the tangents are really funny and make it into the show. A lot of them get left on the editing room floor, but we're trying stuff. Mm. I edit it. I do a a sort of rough pass and put in all the sound effects. Send it over to Daniel to make sure I have his approval that, like, all the content stuff is there. I usually get a sharp note of, why did you cut this joke and why did you cut this great bit? And then we have a very long back and forth about time limits and no every episode can't be two hours long sorry friend and then once that's all okay then i polish it up so it's, it's a really long process generally speaking by the time i have finished an episode i'm getting the script from daniel for the next one so it's there's no downtime in between other little tidbits i pick the music daniel does pick the music i write the set the scene on the bus in <laughs> I don't, I don't know if anyone knows that. Did you know that? I knew that because oh, you told me that okay. every time. You're like, right. I've just written this on the bus. It's crap. And it always is gold. It's always good. Oh, thank you. Oh, you're um, welcome. But yeah, so that's, there's a little, I feel a bit like the Wizard of Oz. 
you know, when he comes out. Oh, don't out. look behind the curtain. But to go back a little bit to the editing of the show as well, a lot of the stuff we cut, a big chunk of it ends up being the analysis. So we've gotten mm. a couple, we've said this before in the show, but a couple of people have gone, oh my God, I can't believe you didn't like analyze this element of the text. We usually do in-person cover as much as we can. We are also only like two people. So there are a million more readings out there than we're ever going to be able to observe. Um, even us. Even us. Yeah. But, like, a lot of the stuff, unless we can say it really quickly and make it funny and or informative, it tends to get cut. So sometimes our analysis is quite rambling, and we're like, and there's no conclusion, and that stuff all gets axed. Yeah. It's a little bit of a shame, isn't it? I kind of would like it if the analysis was a bit longer, but... But I also don't want to do the work for people too much. It's 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 a way of getting you started. To summarize a text is kind of a form of analysis as well. We do do analysis as we go along. As we go along, yeah. Can I ask you, I don't know if this has made it into the show, we talked about this definitely in another recording session, but I can't remember if I cut it or not. When I asked you to do this podcast with me, what was your big fear? Oh yeah, my fear was that I'd be the most famous man in the world. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's a joke fear, obviously. You know, it was the story about when Byron wrote um, Child Harold's Pilgrimage, and when it came out he woke up and he was the most famous man in the world, and I was worried that... I was like, Child Harold's pilgrimage is shit. And if he was the most famous guy in the world, this, this won't be half bad. Uh, what were your fears? The biggest one was that my boss wouldn't like it and I'd be fired. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we did this originally because our department, it looked like it was going to shut down its English program for various reasons that I'm not going to get into, but none of them legitimate. But thankfully, there's been a sort of um, internal political change, and it's, it looks like our university is actually investing in their humanities provision, which is really nice. Um, I don't want to say that we single-handedly saved the humanities, but we kind of did, Daniel. Yeah. But the, the reason why is, you know, I wanted to make people more aware that we were doing humanities work here at Aston to, you know, amp up our number to just, like, like this was a Hail Mary of, like, can, we need It's like Good Morning to- Vietnam, isn't it, where you <laughs> tried to stop the war from escalating. Exactly. Yeah. Right, so let's get to our first set of questions. Anna Paredes. Paredes? I'm, I'm really sorry, I'm not sure how you pronounce your last name. Anna Paredes what? Daniel. Well, I think that's a good joke. <laughs> it's a good, it's a good you joke. You know someone called Anna Pastiches? <laughs> if you can't handle Anna Parodies, you'll have to see Anna Pastiches. This is all free material for you, Anna Parodies, to... You've probably heard it all before. I think it's Anna, first of all. Now, that's and not the crux of the joke. The joke is that it sounds like parodies. Anna, I'm sorry. He is all mash, no bangers this episode. <laughs> okay. If Lex Luthor finally defeated Superman and condemned all humankind to communicate either by email or a conference call, which would you choose? Anna, is this a real question? The answer is email. Yeah, I think so. I think I'm a better writer than speaker. And also it gives you time. You don't have to deal with things immediately. Um, You You can come back to it later. And in fact, you might not know this, but all of these episodes are actually pre-written by email. We're not live in the studio right now. We're feeding it into one of those voice, voice bot. Yeah, the voice yeah. bot things. So I've never I've never even met Daniel. The mumblematic <laughs> is doing mine. <laughs> you find yourself in a fight with two opponent options, a horse-sized duck or a hundred duck-sized horses. Which one do you pick? Well, here's my question back at you, Anna. What am I fighting them with? Because if I have a gun, it's going to be the duck, right? 
I'm sorry, but a horse-sized duck is no match for a shotgun. If it's just my fists and feet, it's the horses. Because the duck can fly. It'll, uh, God, something that big, it'll break more than just your arm. It's bigger than a swan. And they famously break people's arms. And they famously do. That's the one thing anyone knows about swans is they can break your arm. And if I get tired of fighting all the little horses, I can go inside and shut the door. What are they going to do? I can climb a tree? I'm just imagining lots of horses running around um, like a roller rink. (laughs) I don't know why. I think duck, because if you could tame the duck, you could ride it and fly. Are you like one of those girls who believes that if a unicorn existed, it would choose her? I am like one of those girls. I don't know what you're on about, but I think I'd like to ride a flying giant duck. But if it's antagonizing you, if it, if that duck hates your guts... I might misunderstand the situation. It might be a <laughs> Gilgamesh Enkidu thing. You think you can reason with the duck? Well, no, I'll just break the duck. Next question. <laughs> you can only keep one, one of your arms, or the internet. Which one do you let go of? Internet, I think. I like having two arms. You play a lot of instruments as well, which would make it very difficult if you only had one arm. Good point. Very, I didn't even think that. I would choose to give up the internet as well. I grew up without it. Swanton, Vermont did not get the internet really until like 2005 and even after in some places. It was like 2009 before I think everyone had reliable internet service. I can live without it. Okay, so that's the funny question. Those are the funny questions. Or are they the serious ones or are these the funny ones? And she's being ironic because she says... Because she, she parodies but things. Now, <laughs> but now seriously... And actually, I do have to say on it, this question was our favorite question that we received because I think we both agonized over it for a long time, which is great. This is a very good question. This is a very good question. If all of your reading options had to be from two decades, which ones would you choose? Well, people may have noticed that a lot of our texts come from the 1890s. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, as we do it, I'm realizing that. Yeah. And I feel like... It's really changed my mind on that decade as a kind of, you know, what have we covered that was from the 1890s? Dracula, Tessa the D'Urbervilles, Turn of the Screw, Dorian Gray, yeah, there's we, there's loads of stuff we haven't covered. There's all like George Moore, George Gissing. The Grossmith brothers. Yeah, the Grossmiths, love those guys. And it's the range of texts as well. Mm. The Grossmiths are writing funny comic things. Gissing is writing like naturalist stuff. Wells, science fiction wild all sorts of crazy stuff uh and then there's all this kind of neo-gothic stuff as well with the yeah, wild Arthur and Stoker and, yeah Arthur Mack and yeah yeah it's a really it's, not, it's completely changed my mind because like, I don't want to dismiss everything before it but but big doorstop mid-Victorian novels cover a lot of bases yeah and they do it well but they're not they lack kind of precision in any of those areas whereas in the 1890s you get that big shattering and they um Joseph Conrad Oh, I completely forgot. Proto-modernism, Joseph yeah. Conrad. And there's all that symbolism as well. We yeah. And like, um, like Ibsen as well. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, there's loads of, loads of feminist stuff as well. I mean, I've not mentioned mm-hmm. any women writers, but they're, <laughs> they're out there. Lord love them. Um, so, yeah, I think definitely the 1890s. The other one's harder, I think. Um, this is boring because it's quite close, but I was kind of thinking the 1920s. I can see that. Because modernism is wider than you think isn't it because you've got like Wolf you've got Joyce you've got Hemingway but you also have the ability if those are your two decades to compare pre-modernism and modernism that's fun as well yeah yeah exactly because it's we're sort of, they're sort of like bookends aren't they of like the kind of the proto-modernist period mm-hmm. and then the high-modernist period yeah for me I very nearly also picked the 1890s but I, I backtracked a little bit 
and I went with the 1860s because we had a bunch of the, like the big greats. You had mm. Dickens, Collins at the height of his powers. You had Verne, Victor Hugo, Dostoevsky, Lewis Carroll. Tolstoy. You yeah, Tolstoy. You got a lot of the. You still had late Gothic and like penny press stuff coming through, and this was like the best sensation fiction. And there's so much of it out there. So I was like, well, if. If I'm looking for, like, heavy hitter great novelists and a lot of really fun campy crap, it's hard to beat the 1860s because that, that was another moment of, like, explosion in the novel. But my other decade would be the 2000s because uh, this is going to sound weird for a Victorian scholar, but all of my favorite books, the ones that I've reread over and over again have been from the 2000s. So you have House of Leaves, Blonde, Life of Pi, They Went Whistling, The Road, White Teeth, Fingersmith. All of these I've read so many times. I was really disappointed with White Teeth. Were you? I, I, remember, I was like, this is going to be the shit. Oh, I really it's enjoyed like, it. It's fine. It was a bit silly. Okay, on his next question. How do you feel about contemporary works that return to Victorian settings? Neo-Victorian works. Yeah, Neo-Victorian stuff. I personally love them. Some of these books are very, very bad. They wear the 19th century like it's a cheap prom dress. I'm unimpressed and With yet... cheap crinoline. <laughs> yeah, and yet entertained. But the best ones, the whole point is it's a good story and the 19th century is sort of like incidental to it. Mm. So I'm thinking of like the first two seasons of Ripper Street were incredible and really floored me. Um, the author Laura Purcell or Michelle Faber's The Crimson Petal and the White. Yeah, and obviously, you know, Sarah Waters, amazing stuff. But at the at the heart of that is really good writing and a really good story. Yeah, I think in theory I would read some, but I never have. The Flashman <laughs> Oh, yeah, I've read Flashman, yeah. That's true. You've, They're funny. What, you've never really read Neo-Victorian stuff? No, I think I've, I'd kind of prefer something more like 1820s, 1830s. The problem with a lot of Neo-Victorian stuff is, as you say, it kind of is a bit attached to the accoutrements. Mm -hmm. A bit like the steampunks. It's a bit too attached to the, the kind of... It's got a myth of Victorian abundance. But when you... Especially those... I mean, this is all through the Victorian period, but especially like that just pre-Victorian, like 1820s and 30s, you get a real sense of like modernity it being built up around you but you can just there's still all like the mud and slop in the streets and there's still like things falling down and everything's a bit sort of collapsing and you know what i mean i kind of prefer that image of the 19th century to the one of you know nice bowler hats and kind of mahogany bookcases and big glass bells that are over butterflies and you know i kind of <laughs> that's that's what i that's what i think of when i think of neo-victorian literature you have covered a few titles from other languages, so would you consider more international options, like a trip around all the continents? I'd be happy to offer some Brazilian lit suggestions. Machado de Assis, or how do you pronounce it? I'd love to read some of that stuff. Yeah, no, um, well, I've read a couple of things by him, but... Part of the problem with this show is that it is restrictive to us, because there's a ton of stuff out there that would be perfect to cover, but the whole point of this show, and us, us getting started in the first place, was to help teachers in the UK and the US to help largely high schoolers or undergraduates and you know so we, we base a lot of what we're doing based on what most often gets taught and we often look at um, in the UK there are some tests there's A levels and then there's another level called GCSE and they have a lot of like set texts that most schools do and so we try to you know we yeah. try to base what we're, we're doing on what's the most useful to people in our like target well, audience I think more cynically you could just say, I'm an Anglo-centric girl and I live in an Anglo-centric <laughs> world. And it's, you know, if you want to get a lot of listeners, 
go for the big hitters and it's a shame because obviously I'd love to read that is depressing. Of Portuguese language works from both sides of the pond and well I've been thinking because we have a, a lot of texts on here that I think are some of our best episodes and they don't get anywhere yeah. near the hits that like the great Gatsby does because it's taught constantly yeah. and everyone knows that one but so the the thing is Every year we try to balance mostly big heavy hitters that get taught a lot and we try to at least meld in some world literature to just help balance it a little bit because there's so much great literature out there but you know it's it's mixed motivations. Mm. Bonus question that has been lingering on my mind since I listened to the Lady Chatterley's Lover episode. Daniel's accents are a lot of fun. Thank you. But how do we stop him from ever trying to do a samba again? What was this? Was it, it was me saying that we're like dancing at different beats and I was doing a waltz and you were doing a samba. Never try to stop him. Honestly, you're just listening. You can't see what I see. To watch Daniel Samba, it's to see the face of God. Yeah. I have got a serious answer to this when i was at school there was a samba band and uh, every school, what yeah. <laughs> what school did you go to samba bands are big in this country there's a the, the park near me the samba band are always playing practicing what? i've been in this country for 12 years you're in the wrong bit <laughs> you're in the wrong bit what well and um, every school concert the samba band would get like three separate performances where they just samba it up i'm sure it's great fun when you're walking down the you know Copacabana. Let's put it this way: when you're sitting right, at, when you're waiting to play your little trumpet voluntary, and there's a, you're sitting right at the front, and there's a samba band playing in your face. Three separate occasions, twenty-minute sets or whatever each time. That samba gets old. And I bet it's annoying because it gets the crowd like really worked exactly. up, and then you have and to then follow. And then I'm there going like. <laughs> 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 um, this is one from Jeff Milo. Are we doing surnames? Well, we have been. Yeah, we have done. This is one from Jeff Milo. Do you have... This is what Jeff says. Do you have... Do, do you have <laughs> Jesus, a process for picking the books you discuss? Can you, can you read that again? Not like an asshole. Do you have a process for picking the books you discuss? Yes, so we've alluded to that a little bit before. We have a huge, huge pool of texts that we've divided into different sort of like literary movements and time periods. Every season we go through and we pick a few anchor texts, so things that we've been meaning to get to or we think would be really great or that a ton of listeners have requested. From those few anchor texts, then we build up, you know, and we, we try to get as much range as we can while, as we've already said, trying to do a lot of texts that are that are studied the most frequently. Yeah, I go through all the A-level syllabuses and GCSE syllabuses. I think another thing is that they, if, there is a kind of relative pattern to the te to each series isn't there that, we, we try to have a shakespeare there's usually a shakespeare there's usually a victorian doorstop there's usually an 18th century novel although we're running out of those yeah uh there's usually an 1890s <laughs> book for some reason uh have a go at modernism mid-20th century drama we they're quite formulated all those patterns we're, we've been trying to get an ancient text and or a big medieval text yeah. in at some you know yeah. so I, I like that that the last 500 years of human history get these kind of nuanced <laughs> things and then we just like the rest of it it's like yeah try and get one of them in yeah but yes it, it, there's a, there's quite an elaborate long-reaching <coughs> sorry karen i would bless you but you don't deserve my blessing thank you the 
point is there's a lot of bickering that goes into it and it's it's quite carefully puzzle pieced in and there's usually a text that at the last minute for whatever reason we cut and we swap out for something else I, yeah, i'm looking at our yeah. we have we have lists up on my office wall and you can see the things that we uh that we've swapped out over the years yeah. well crime and punishment got famously got cut because of the war so there are kind of funny external factors. Yeah. Like, we're, or not so funny external factors. We were like, maybe maybe we'll push Russian lit a little further down the line. Um, yeah, in our first season, our Oedipus Rex episode, that's when we were going to do the Epic of Gilgamesh. And we, we bounced that for Oedipus. You thought the kids love Oedipus. They do. But. They really do. In the second season... Uh, we were going to do Crime and Punishment, and that got replaced with Jekyll and Hyde because of the war. We were going to do The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe then, and we replaced it with Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Um, More he, questions from Jeff, please. He also asks, is one of you secretly chaotic and the other in order? In terms of recording, Daniel is an agent of chaos because he likes to improvise, and I do not. I get very, very nervous about improv. I'm fine in a, like, a normal conversation, but as soon as you record me and i'm conscious of being observed i completely clam up so about 75 percent of my jokes are prefabs I, I write out my scripts quite carefully yeah daniel i never i never really know where you're going to the point that i want to get you chipped sometimes yeah it's kind of a bit like um in the land of the anal <laughs> i'm the fonz <laughs> But anywhere else, that's not true. <laughs> that seems to be the experience I've had. I'm very, very impressed with you, though, that you can, like, I guess you must have watched a lot of panel shows as a boy, because you can just, you can just turn up and Ooh, just riff. Yeah, that's probably true, actually. That awful, cheap TV that provides incomes to people that went to Cambridge. But it's good because you forced me out of my shell, because I think you riffing so much, and the fact that I edit, and I'm like, well, if I make a bad joke, I can just cut it and throw it away and no one ever needs to know yeah. and you'll forget by yeah next i don't week. remember any, yeah no i don't remember any of these sessions so yeah in terms of recording daniel's the agent of chaos i am the very very orderly one next do you have any fave non-fiction books uh capital <laughs> daniel that's not, that's not funny i know I just that's such well, a new answer well i feel like i've, I've put uh, many hours of my life into studying mm -hmm. marx's works so that's one vico oh god of course the uh, new science bloody love that that's crazy oh guys i think i've said this on a previous episode but daniel has been thoroughly vico pilled yeah yeah i i Vico Pill is exactly it. Yeah, I love that. Like, you read that once and it's just completely, uh, you know how... Scrambled my brain. I feel like now you just see everything a bit differently. Like, now the world is in glorious technicolor like Oz. Yeah, Vico is a bit like that. Yeah, <laughs> the Wizard of Oz. I love the Eric Hobsbawm 19th century trilogy. I know That's you so do. Good. Really, really good. Recommend that. Um, oh, God. My... Sorry, I should let you have a go, but no, I'm no. going to keep going. Um, <laughs> probably something by a woman. Uh, but yeah, it might be a good shout. Oh, I love Ellen Mikeson's wood. This is, she's another Marxist, but she's very good on um Well, the conceptual history of modernity kind of skews our way of thinking about material history. But yeah, so there you go. Anyway, go on, Abby. Um, mine are much more popular options. So when I moved to Scotland from the US, 
I brought one book with me, and it was Barbara Holland's They Went Whistling, which is a book I discovered as a teeny tiny feminist of 13, and I think I've read it every year since then, sometimes twice a year. And it's just, it's a, like a very light, popular biography of women who were slightly rebellious in history. Um, her, her whole conceit was, oh god, what was it? It was like Time Magazine or something, or National Geographic published a comprehensive 2,000 years of human history at the turn of the millennium, and there wasn't one woman on there. I'm also quite a big crime fiction person, so Devil in the White City about the building of the 1893 World's Fair in conjunction with a serial killer, H.H. Holmes, operating in Chicago in that period, and All Be Gone in the Dark, which is the Michelle McNamara thing that actually cracked the real-life uh, Golden State Killer case, which is wild to me. So I, I have a lot of... Um, Nonfiction, and if you want to get a bit more theoretical, which I know you would love me to, yeah, she may have cracked some crime, but Vico discovered that <laughs> um, myths are a primitive form of heroic language. Oh well, okay. How, how much, how much more useful can you get? Well, do do you need to detract? Yes. What what are your theoretical ones then? If we're talking about philosophy, I love John Stuart Mill because he has so clearly thought through this. But he writes it in a very accessible language. Similarly, if you want to talk about labor, you want to talk about feminism, I think Anne Helen Peterson's works are really accessible, and I sign up to her newsletter, and I find everything she says to be delightful. Tell you what, Karl Marx has some pretty sick burns for John Stuart Mill. Maybe! Just thought, just Maybe. Just say. What uh, else does Jeff ask yes. us? What about the benefits of humor in teaching? What about the benefits of humor in teaching? I don't know. What do you think? I mean, you and I are quite funny when we teach. I think I've just got we... something, something wrong with me that means I'm trying to make everything a joke. And that is a sickness in you. Yeah, and it's almost like it's kind of irrelevant as to whether it's useful or not. <laughs> Jokes often are predicated on in incongruity, aren't they? And you can often make deliberately incongruous connections between something that seems quite dry or complex with something that's quite mundane or simple in a way that's obviously ridiculous, but also is illustrative. It provokes thought. Like, we pick up on these weird little details, and then you go, yeah, but why did you include that? That's a weird moment. Yeah. Or just be like, yeah, this com this complex philosophical idea is also a bit like this stupid celebrity feud or whatever. Who among us listening to a speaker would prefer to listen to somebody who is very serious and very dry talk for an hour versus somebody who is providing other forms of entertainment. So, like, it, it's a way of breaking it up. It's a way of giving you different emotional registers. You can get very serious and then break the tension with mm. a joke. It's it's good for the attention span. Like, I yeah. think any filmmaker will tell you this, that you need to hit different notes. But I also think, in terms of our teaching, it's a lack of intimidation. So, you, you know that when I teach, especially first years, I want them to be at ease. So I drop a tactical swear word in the first, like, 15 minutes. So they all Just kind of... like this. <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly what I do. But so they know that, like, this is a place where you can... We're not taking it too seriously. Yeah. Like, that's the point of free our whole show. Also, it's about... It's not even about seriousness. It's about, like, free thought, isn't it? This is a place for free thought and free expression. And, but also, I was thinking, in terms of us and our ability to teach well, if we look back to our first couple of episodes, where we were terrified, and you can hear how uptight we were, those episodes are not good. They're not very funny. They're not very engaging. Up until probably Wuthering Heights starts to get better. Gawain and the Green Knight starts to get better. 
I think Pamela is the first episode we really relaxed. Gatsby feels like the first standard episode, but I think Pamela is a more relaxed one, yeah. We're better teachers because of that, because we're actually talking like ourselves. I, I think the issue is, when you're teaching, you have to actually teach in your own voice. We've got one from Robert Potter. Would you consider looking up poetry such as Hughes or Coleridge? Um, we've done plenty of stuff that's in verse already. We have been toying with the idea of doing maybe some narrative poems, um, and one might be coming up a lot sooner than you think. Yeah, I suppose like lyric poetry in that the way that most people understand that would be quite hard to summarise. Imagine doing like a funny, funny summary of like Ode to Autumn or something. Yeah, yeah. And then he's like, "Where are the songs to spring?" And I'm <laughs> like, well, "Yeah." <laughs> I can't even think of any songs in spring right now. So I think it'd be quite hard to do a... But I think, like, Coleridge, like, obviously, like, Rhyming Inch Mariner would be quite easy to, that, to do. That's on our long list of things that we've, we've been toying with. And when we do our next, like, tournament round, I think Coleridge probably will feature. There might be a sort of, like, narrative poem mm. category. So. Um, I'm just thinking Tintin Abbey would be quite funny. Just like, here I am, looking at a valley, <laughs> just thinking about the nature of thought. And I'm loving it. <laughs> there you go, I've done it right now. <laughs> So I hope that answers your question. Uh, Nemon, 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 Seven says, "Who are the classic, renowned, compulsory reading authors that you think are overrated or not that great, and who are the forgotten ones that you think deserve to be taught and republished and made into TV shows?" Be ruthless. Ooh, that's a good one. That's a good question. I'm not sure, really. I feel like I'm not actually that well-read. I feel like... Daniel, yes, you are. You are incredibly well-read. Well, uh... I'm, I'm, I'm quite an easygoing person, I think. I always, whenever I read a book, I'm like, well, it is what it is. I'm one of those people, like, oh, well, it is what it is. Daniel, you're not... First of all, I hate that expression. Secondly, you got very mad that we had to read Orlando because you thought that was aristocracy propaganda. Porn. Aristocracy porn. Fine. Yeah, I, yeah, I didn't like Orlando. Doesn't mean I think that Wolf is overrated per se. There must be an author that you're not that fussed by. Come on, don't be a coward. I, I, I did. I read this. And I was like, I don't know. So it's, I've, it's not like I've not done prep. You've stumped Daniel. Sorry. That's okay. Um, as for forgotten that deserve to be taught and republished and made into TV shows, but no, but it does annoy me the way you get like thirty great expectations, and I love great expectations. Yeah, so do I. We should do that on the show, to but be honest. you hardly get any trollops. Yeah. And even trollops fairly mainstream. You get, yeah. yeah, you get the palaces, but you don't get much. You're looking for a, a Barchester Towers. I feel like I'm... No, you just, I think you're panicking a little bit. It's really weird to see you. The number of times you've done this with your hair. Yeah, maybe. You're, give, you're giving yourself Jimmy Neutron hair. <laughs> maybe, yeah. <laughs> anyway, what's yours then? Well, who are your... Well, i Hot and not... <laughs> I've said before, I, I'm not a tremendous fan of George Eliot. I don't want to say she's overrated. I've just never connected with her. And I think that's because I think she doesn't actually want to be writing what she's actually writing. I think her heart is elsewhere and she views it as beneath her. And that makes me really sad and not want to engage with her. She wants to be doing Feuerbach, doesn't she? She wants to be doing Sensation Lit. And oh, no, I think she wants to be doing German Idealism. Well, I think she wants to be maybe doing She kind of stuck both, between the two. And she got stuck between the two yeah. and it's not... It's funny that Silas Mana should feature a horse failing to jump over a fence. Because that's kind of what she's doing. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously, like, of course, as a feminist, I have a healthy disdain for Hemingway like my elders taught me. I think, oh, there, there's, the problem is, 
the biggest one, the one I immediately went to when I was asked this question, is an author whose name I'm not going to say, because this person is still alive and writing today, and their fans are absolutely rabid and love them, maybe deservedly so. I've just never connected. It just leaves me very, very cold. I think that was fun, and then I never, ever think of them again. Like, the book breaks apart in my mind. Exactly. Oh yeah, not a big fan either. Yeah, you're right, he is overrated. It's utterly, it just means nothing to me as soon as I'm done. It's just gone. Yeah. It's just gone from my heart and my head. Yeah. And I've read a lot trying to chase that high that other people have. In terms of the author that is wildly underserved, Wilkie Collins, what are people doing? There was it, that TV program from The Woman in White. It was astonishingly bad as was the moonstone no, i was I enjoyed it i was fucking mortified right, i haven't read it though so there you go oh, that just tells God. us how underrated he uh, is um this is a hard question this next one okay chintan nanavati says what are the worst literary or otherwise habits of english academics oh so english as in by where you're from yeah right, right. not english subject and of american academics of english i gotta be honest Chintin, I did not know how to answer this question. Yeah, choose your words carefully. I think in fairness, I, despite my accent, have only ever been known as, as a British academic because I did my master's and PhD and have only ever worked in the UK, so I'm trained in the UK system. I don't really know American academics apart from, like, my undergrad professors, and I went to a school that wasn't that big on, like, research it was a teaching school but the fact you would even have that sort of stuff yeah yeah which is that that's wild to me that you could even go to a school that is like that so i don't i'm really sorry i don't know how to answer that question because i don't know the american system very well i think academics in general are pretty annoying uh, <laughs> the whole like herding cats vibe it's sort of like wanting to be a celebrity but also wanting to be known as the cleverest in the room there's all that kind of stuff isn't there like like we've talked about it, like it's like doing lectures is like wanting to be a comedian but also having a kind of escape route of having to explain stuff and you know what i mean i think there's a bit of yeah. all that sort of there's a kind of narcissism to it maybe i'm being very unfair maybe i'm just thinking about myself this is very competitive long story short chintan you've actually um opened uh, up a whole can of worms well you opened us up to probably what like 20 minutes of discussion that we've then had to cut from this because we're just like moaning about <laughs> how hard the industry is here in academia yeah like so we just we've just had a, a right old bitch session okay should we move on yes do you want me do you want me to read this one okay. since we read the last one hello from your old pal am hello well, am we haven't heard from you in a while who never misses an episode well am you have great taste i don't go on twitter much these days Thank you, Mr. Muskrat. <laughs> Sorry, that made me laugh. But I saw you were taking questions about the show. I just so happened to have one or two kicking around. Where do you get your sound effects and music? Well, I get all the music primarily from Wikimedia Commons. Because I'm, I'm very paranoid about getting uh, copyrighted music. Yeah, yeah. All of our music and sound effects are public domain and and or fair use um or we make them ourselves so there have been one or two like the queer reading sound effect i have cobbled together from several other public domain sound effects um you there's there's a war horn sound effect not the foreshadowing horn but a war horn one that is you on your trumpet yeah there's a the, the foreshadowing horn is some kind of nerd recorded trains and that's on the <laughs> um, so 
Yeah, Wikipedia uh, Commons is my first port of call. Yeah, I did. I did the Mothers Against Wardrobes. Well, you know things. Yeah. Like, we we do the odd one here. Um, we would love the show-stopping drama of some big lawsuit where, like, the happy birthday heirs turn up as surprise witnesses, but we simply do not have Alan Dershowitz money, so, <laughs> like, that's why it's fair use or public domain only. Yeah, and Daniel picks basically all of our music. He's very good at that. I'm terrible at picking such things. It's a bit of a nerdy thing on my part, picking the music. Like, oh, I want it to reflect the <laughs> mood, but also the period, but also the... Well, Daniel also writes the set the scene where we first hear the opening music, so it makes more sense for him to pick it That's anyway. That's true, yeah. Because it can they go with what complement each other, don't Yeah. Um, are you fast or slow readers? I'm a slow reader. I'm a fast reader. I can speed read, but um, uh, volume is not an indicator of memory or comprehension. Famously, I read Capital in like a couple of days. All three volumes for my PhD. That's crazy. I don't remember a word of it. I pulled the quotes I needed and I left it and I couldn't tell you one thing about it. Not one thing. Yeah, I'm quite good at remembering books. I normally only read them once. You read them slow. Yeah. Slowly and... Little and often. No, not little and often. Little and rarely. <laughs> Uh, any advice for slow readers? Read at your pace. Do not force it. It's not a moral arbiter. It's not a an indicator of, yeah, as we said, comprehension yeah. or sophistication. Like, you read how you read. And also, if you're a really slow reader and it's getting you down, just don't read. <laughs> there's, there's a tip. Uh, do you get stage fright? Well, I think we've kind of covered this, haven't we? Yeah. But, I yeah. Get, I've done theatre all my life terrible terrible stage fright the first time i go off to perform a new show and then after that i'm like as soon as i go on stage i'm fine for this um i don't do improv it makes me feel sick to my stomach because i just being observed if i don't have prepared lines makes any personality go immediately out of my head so yes yeah i can't perform actually like properly like at conferences i'm all swaying but you're really good at this that's wild this is funny because it's just like you can trick yourself into thinking you're not really doing something. Yeah. I think after the fact, actually, I get real nerves. Like, I'm always worried about having said something inappropriate or something like that. The number of emails I've gotten from you going, is this joke dodgy? And yeah, exactly. No, so, yeah, not. I get kind of post hoc stage fright more often, if anything. Do you want to read the last bit? Yes. Thank you for... this. Is, so that's the end of AM's questions. Thanks for brightening these increasingly dark and lonely days, God, uh, with your joy and brains. Also, we're very handsome. Read what, read what she says. I thought this was very charming. What? Because we're on Twitter. We're a very handsome pair. Voices for radio and faces for the silver screen. It's <laughs> pretty good, isn't it? I agree, AM. Faces for radio. You don't want that. You do want, yeah, you want voices for radio. So that's good. Thank you, AM. Yeah, collect your jaw. We are naturally resplendent. And uh, we are always camera ready. That's quite a good picture, isn't it? I think. What is your most reread book? I don't normally reread books, as you know. Uh, I that's know. Why you're that's this. why I'm asking you this. Um, I go back to that Eric Hobsbawm 19th century trilogy quite a lot. Can I can I rephrase this question? Fiction. What's your most reread fiction? Yeah, I for some reason I I kind of dip into books a lot. So I dip into a lot of Homer Melville. Oh, I should have known it'd be Melville. Also, so the Unfortunate Traveller by Thomas Nash has loads of really great like one-liners in it that I dip into. Any books you think we didn't do justice to? Certainly Frankenstein, probably Othello. Anything, I think, up to Pamela. 
So that's Wuthering Heights. Gawain and the Green Knight was okay. The Great Gatsby is okay-ish, but I think we do more mm. nowadays. And also, it would have been nice to do all the Canterbury Tales, but it would have been like a nightmare to actually do that. That would have been that would have been three or four yeah. episodes, yeah. I think. I think Wide Sargasso Sea also was a bit. That's a hard book. Yeah, so it's, it's the same with the. Uh, sorry to interrupt. It's the same with Things Fall Apart. That the kind of sort of slightly more experimental works are quite hard to cover. Yeah, it's it because it's yeah not linear storytelling. Mm, um, I was going to say, any that you think that the authors didn't do justice to. Sometimes you get a book and you're like, this could have been way better. This is such a cool idea. Silas Marner. Yeah, that is a funny one, isn't it? Because it does end so abruptly. I did enjoy it, though. Um, An inspector calls. I thought that was fine as it is. Well, my final question is, what is the last bit of classic literature that you just couldn't finish? Might be something by Balzac, actually. I can't remember. Really? That's unusual. Yeah, well, he wrote loads, so he didn't finish some of them. Uh, Why should you? Right. That was quite tiring. They, they've asked us some good yeah, questions. Good like questions, yeah. People asked us a ton of questions. Maybe not all of them will get covered. But um, yeah, th- thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah, uh, yeah this, is our, this is our bit of bonus material for you. So sorry about me having to go away for a bit. We really do appreciate your patience here. So that wraps us up. And we will be back next for our, our another little spate of like, you know, every two week episode so don't worry we're not we don't have any plans to go away i don't think for a little while and please do write into our email we have our patreon you can tweet us you can instagram us you can tiktok us you can do all sorts of things and right from daniel and myself uh thank you very much yes thanks again bye bye (laughs) thanks for listening to save me from my shelf our music is the Overture to Don Giovanni by Mozart and cover art is by Catherine Wu. Our thanks to Aston University's Centre for Critical Inquiry and to Society and Culture for funding the startup of this podcast. Contact us at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or at smfms underscore podcast on Twitter. And do not, I'm going to remind you, do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Do not forget. Thank you.